If you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter uh, 27. As you're turning there, Matthew 27, continuing in our series through the Gospel of Matthew, we recall that in the previous chapter, in chapter 26, Jesus is arrested. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the chief priests. Uh, This was out of envy, we know. Uh, The chief priests and the religious leaders uh, feel a threat to their own ministry, a threat to their own authority, and so they have desired to oust and kill the Lord Jesus. And so he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, and he is accused specifically of blasphemy. That was Thursday. On Good Friday, he is then turned over and delivered to the Romans, from the Jewish leadership to the Roman authorities and to Pontius Pilate. The trial continues. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 11. Listen now to God's word. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they, the chief priests, had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged or flogged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. The question that Pilate asks in verse uh, 22 is perhaps one of the most important questions any person in the world, and certainly ourselves, can, can ask. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? In fact, a lot of the story surrounding the trial of Jesus, both before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, or the Roman authorities, centers on that question, what it is that people are doing with Christ. Think about the different characters and groups and how they are treating the Lord, how they are responding to Him, what their views are of Him. You have the chief priests 
They have been conspiring and plotting to put the Lord Jesus to death. His influence, his claims are a threat to their authority. When he's brought before the Sanhedrin, as we saw in the previous chapter, you had false witnesses, false testimony given about the Lord. We see other people mocking and maligning his name. Back in chapter 26, verse 67, people were spitting in his face, striking him. Some slapped him and mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who hit you. When he's handed over to the Romans, now in chapter 27, Pilate is willing to release a notorious prisoner whom we learn from the other Gospels is an insurrectionist, a murderer, while at the same time Pilate knows Jesus to have an innocence about him. Yet he will have Jesus flogged and then crucified. What about the crowds? They're shouting, crucify him. They are certain in their minds that this Jesus is no Messiah. He's powerless and he is defenseless. So the question that Pilate asks, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, is an important question. What do I believe about him? How is my life a response to him? What do I think about him? Important questions. And those are questions that Jesus himself would have us to consider If we turn back to chapter 16, that was a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew where Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. And you remember the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Some say uh, one of the prophets. Some say Elijah. Yes, but who do you say that I am? Important questions. And yet as important as this question is, uh, what do I think about Jesus or what are... What are people doing with Jesus? I think there is a more important question. There's a question that's greater that looms large over all the trial. It's not what are you and I doing? What are the chief priests doing? Or what are the crowds doing? What is our Lord doing? That's that's the attention. What is Jesus doing? It's what Jesus does. It's what Jesus says or what he doesn't say, that is illuminating to us, revealing to us as to who he is, his real identity. The fact that Jesus willingly suffers the maligning, the mocking, the defaming of his name should grab hold of any reader of this gospel. Who does that? It should shock the reader in part because that's why the disciples had fled the Lord in the first place. What Lord and what King willingly and passively, in a way, suffers these allegations and this mocking and this flogging? You know, people will go to great lengths in everyday life to defend their own name, their own character, their own reputation. If you saw any of the presidential debates or the vice presidential debate, if you didn't, people might argue whether you missed very much, But if you did, among other things, you saw people adamant about defending their own name, their own character, their own positions, the things they've said, the things they haven't said. We are quick to to defend ourselves. But it's not just people. Our Lord, the God of the Bible, is interested in defending, in protecting his own name. 
Consider the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. One of the commandments is committed to that whole purpose, the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. His name represents his person. His name represents his character, just like your name and my name represents our person and our character. And so to speak falsely about the Lord or to distort his character is to misrepresent him. And yet, what is Jesus doing? With all of these accusations and this mocking and false testimony, the fact that Jesus does little to nothing to defend himself tells us this is a different kind of king. And he's after a completely different kind of purpose. And that's one of the things that we want to see through the trial of our Lord. How different this king is. All the way in the trial that we've just considered before Pilate, from verse 11 to 26, Jesus is reported to have said only one thing, as far as I can see. That's it. A response to the question that Pilate asks. Are you the king of the Jews, in verse 11. And he said, you have said so. But the accusations keep coming. The pressing keeps coming in verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer, it says. Pilate then says, don't you hear how many things they're testifying against you? But he gives no answer again. He's demonstrated who he is already. He needs, there's no need to give any further answer. But there's a lot of accusations coming, but little to no defense. Who is this king who chooses not to defend himself? He has a different purpose in mind. He's coming to accomplish a much different purpose. Now, notice the question that Pilate asked the Lord. He asked him, are you the king of the Jews? But that was not the question that he was asked the previous night by Caiaphas when he was being tried before the Sanhedrin. What was the question that Caiaphas had asked? Are you the Christ? Not are you the king of the Jews. Are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus responded with the same words. You have said so which is a Greek way of saying a couple of things. One, it's to confirm in the positive, you've said so, yes, I am. But it's also a way of deflecting the responsibility back to the questioner. You, de- you decide, am I the Christ? You need to discern in your own mind, am I king of the Jews? And Caiaphas had said, he has uttered blasphemy. Are you the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah? You've said so. He's uttered blasphemy. He's claiming a divine status. But we've noted in times past that there's a problem here because blasphemy is not sufficient to warrant the death penalty under Roman rule. So notice what has happened in the shift from Jesus before before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas to now before Pontius Pilate. The question has changed. The charge has changed in the transfer from the Sanhedrin to Pontius Pilate. The charge is no longer blasphemy. The charge is more like insurrection, revolt. 
Because if Jesus will confirm he is some kind of king, king of the Jews, uh, a kind of revolutionary, that will warrant the death penalty. He's a rebel. He's a revolutionary. He's going to stir things up within Roman uh, authority. And yet with all the accusations, Jesus says almost nothing. He willingly subjects himself to the injustice. The way that Jesus presents himself, I think, provides for us a very important point about the character of our Lord, the character of the gospel, the character of our Christian faith. Jesus is not superficial. He doesn't superficially endear himself to Pilate or to the chief priests or to the crowds, and he does not superficially endear himself to any of us. He doesn't try to dress things up in order to attract people to him. Remember Isaiah's prophetic words about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing outwardly beautiful or outwardly attractive about Christ or the gospel message. The gospel of Christ's cross doesn't have that kind of attraction. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Pure Christianity in its outward appearance is an equally unattractive object and wears upon its surface few royal tokens. It is without form or comeliness, and when men see it, there is no beauty that they should desire it. Nominal Christianity is tolerantly approved by most men, but the pure gospel is scorned and rejected. The real Christ of today among men is unknown and unrecognized as much as he was among his own nation. We have seen through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is winsome. He will say things as we saw in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. But he's not superficial. He never made following him something of a sugar coating or something glossy or only skin deep. Yes, he says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. But when he's accused falsely, when he's reviled and mocked, he doesn't revile in return. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The fact that Jesus suffered unjustly committing no revile in return, showing himself a man familiar with suffering, reminds us that our faith and our discipleship is not the result of something outwardly majestic, something outwardly attractive. Our Lord, our Master and King, was crucified and willingly suffered injustice. 
This is who we worship. This is who we praise. What is attractive from the lens of the world about that? The gospel has power, not because of its external beauty, because, but because it is true. And it is transforming in people's lives. Remember, remember Paul's words to the church at Corinth. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. As Jesus stands before Pilate, there is such a stark contrast between the character of Christ and the character of Pilate and the crowds and the chief priests. On the one hand, Jesus, we see, is fixed and resolved not on pleasing man, but on being obedient to his heavenly Father, willingly suffering injustice. But what about Pilate? Pilate is owned by man. He's owned by the crowds. Uh, Pilate wavers and waffles. On the one hand, we see that he's owned by the crowds. He kind of represents that um, political figure or the state who is just interested in keeping some kind of order, even at the expense of injustice, suffered to others. He wavers back and forth. On the one hand, we're told in verse 18, Pilate knew it was out of envy that they, the chief priests, had delivered him up. So Pilate knows that Jesus is not a threat to Roman authority or Roman rule. And that the only reason the chief priests wanted him ousted and killed is because he's a threat to their ministry. In addition, we've come to learn that Pilate believes there's a kind of innocence in Jesus. He says in verse 23, what evil has he done? And then he has his wife send him word to have nothing to do with this righteous man. She had a terrible dream about him. And so on the one hand, a Pilate feels this wrong in delivering Jesus over. He feels a, a pressure about this. But the pressure of the crowd is too great. The chief priests, the religious leaders, had convinced the people that Jesus is a threat to their way of life and their religion. He's a rebel. He needs to be subdued. And so, as we learn, Pilate had introduced a custom to release a prisoner each year during the feast. This was a, a way to win and keep the favor of, of the general public. They get to decide who to release. And isn't it striking who the crowd chooses? We're told in verse 16, a notorious prisoner is brought out named Barabbas. It's in the other gospel writers that we learn that he is a murderer, a robber, and an insurrectionist. This is someone who is actually a threat to uh, the rule of law and to Rome's authority. And yet when given the choice, the crowd chooses Barabbas. Why would the, choose, why would the crowd choose Barabbas to be released? Perhaps it's because no matter how innocent Jesus is, no matter how humble, uh, no matter how much of a truth teller he has been, he has gotten in the way of their way of life. He's gotten in the way of their interests, their religion, their nationalism. The world does not want someone who is righteous confronting their wickedness. So they choose Barabbas. 
I think perhaps the choice is a way to have someone who represents them. Someone who takes matters into their own hands, even when, with violence if necessary. That's what Barabbas represents. That's who he is. Their choice to free a violent and corrupt man justifies their own sin, their own corruption. This man we can associate with. Listen to these words from uh, David Garland. They're a little bit lengthy, but worth the hearing. He says, he, Barabbas, appeals to our basic instinct to protect our interests with violence if necessary. In contemporary culture, we've been indoctrinated to prefer the violent answer over the peaceful one. Most Western children are bombarded with television shows and movies where the hero is pushed to the limit by oppressors until he can take no more and he strikes back with a vengeance. Usually the plot pits one man against many and he always resorts to violence to win the day. The the subliminal lesson learned is that the only way to handle the evil of others is to blow them away. Our heroes become the Barabbases of the world, who take matters into their own hands and dispatch, dispatch the enemy with brute force or clever trickery. In other words, we've learned little since the day the crowd hailed Barabbas and called for Jesus to be crucified. Barabbas' way only doles out more violence in a never-ending cycle. Jesus' way soaks up the injustice, evil, and oppression like the venom of a sting and unleashes a far more powerful force of love and forgiveness. God's way responds to evil redemptively and short-circuits it. On the cross, Jesus took the sting of death and absorbed all the poison. Many are the takeaways through the trial of our Lord. One of them is human nature's desire to control outcomes. Jesus is a threat. And instead of seeking to understand him, his kingdom, what he has said, it's just easier to join with the crowd in the mocking. Just to take matters into one's own hand, exert one's own will, and if necessary, use violence. But it's also true of the disciples, those who profess faith in him. Remember the disciples, at this point, they had fled the Lord because the outcome of the Lord's suffering is not what they desired. And they couldn't understand it. But what does it mean to yield to the Lord? What does it mean to submit to Him? Submitting to Him is about following Him even when I don't understand how the outcomes are serving the purposes of God. That's at the heart of Christ's trial. It's at the heart of the gospel story. The world does not see that even in the exercise here of their own mocking and wickedness, God is accomplishing a much more glorious purpose, a glorious and grand redemption. They don't see it. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. It must have seemed to the crowds and the chief priests an amusing and absurd thing. What king has no army? 
What king appears powerless over his enemies? What king willingly submits himself to suffering and scourging? And yet, for those who believe, when you read those words in verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas, and having flogged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We know behind that act is the gracious and wonderful love of God and the love of Jesus Christ to accomplish for us a glorious salvation, to make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Remember this morning, behind the mocking, behind the flogging of Christ stands the truth of God's great love for us, that he had us, his people, his children, in mind. As Paul said in Ephesians, in love God called us and predestined us to be adopted into his family through Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Remember this morning those words in Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to the Lord Jesus himself who suffered, that we might receive strength from him, that we might receive grace in our own time of need. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the willingness of your heart uh, to suffer greatly on behalf of our salvation for us, that you had us in mind as you endured the mocking and the maligning. Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts would be fixed upon you, that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted, but that we would remember your enduring spirit and to carry out indeed something that we could not accomplish ourselves. We pray, O Lord, that uh, we might have hearts softened uh, for your goodness and mercy and your ministry in our lives, that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray that you would bind us together, Lord, that we would be one uh, in Jesus Christ. Christ crucified and risen from the dead and ascended and seated at your right hand with all power. May we look to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.